Father in heaven, we are grateful to be able to join together again today to study together. Um, Lord, we have been praying that you will guide this class today. Um, what we're going to be talking about, as you well know, is sensitive. And Lord, we need your input. We need your direction. We need clarity from you. Uh, it's really easy to get mixed up in humanity and human thinking. Mm. Father, please help us because we don't want to confuse your work. We want to unconfuse it. Mm. And we know that the only source of clarity in sorting this all out is your holy word. We thank you for it. And we thank you that we can talk together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us now through the presence of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's starting to get warm in here. <laughs> Somebody turned on the sun, so now we got that along with everything else. Are you able to see? Okay. All right, that's fine. <laughs> you may be hidden, but you actually may be more focused. <laughs> All right, folks, um, today is, is a day where I'm venturing underground. I've somewhat feared to, to launch upon, but when I first discovered a very important little piece, which was only a couple, three or four weeks ago, a lot of lights turned on in my mind, and I'll try to explain that today as time allows for us. And um, it, it helped me to understand why I've been confused. I've been confused. Is that right? I've been confused. And I wasn't sure why I was confused. I now know why I was confused. I didn't say I'm not confused anymore. I just said I now know why I was confused. And, uh, but it's a very, it's a very serious uh, discussion we need to have today. We're going to focus on some recent history today. I want to remind you that we will focus on the teaching of time, not necessarily the teaching of the Bible. Now, I caution you with that, and I place the emphasis in my prayer on the Word of God, and tomorrow we will take a look at the Word of God again, but there comes a time when we do have to compare some of the journeys in history along the way, and our more recent history. And the Bible does not record recent history, but it does correct recent history to make sure that we're on the right track. Um, today we're going to be focusing on a major event which has had significant impact on our church and seek to understand its impact on us today. That is going to be our focus today. But we really want our eyes and our ears to be open to the Word of God and His truth. I don't know how many of you, how many of you, quote, grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? How many of you came to the church later through Bible studies, evangelistic meetings, that kind of thing? Okay. Maybe there are even some here who have not yet made that decision. And that could be too. I'm not going to put you on the spot today. But I, I want you to realize that all of us are on a journey. You are on a journey, I'm on a journey, and that also reminds us that I'm part of a church made up of people who are on a journey. And along this journey, it's easy for us to get off track on our journey without us realizing we're off track. And the only way we know for sure is to come back to the Word of God. The Word of God is full of stories and examples of the church wrestling with the journey along the way. we got a real devil out there. And Brother Sliger keeps reminding us we're in a war. And in this war, there is an enemy. And the enemy is real. And the enemy has a goal. And his goal is to destroy God's church. Our safeguard is the Word of God. I want to make three observations today. Two of them I made yesterday. I want to remind you of them. I know that there's some people here who have not been here all along. 
And I want to make sure that we're all together on this. First of all, as we tend to focus on the differences, folks, we're very blessed to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Our differences are far outweighed by what we agree on. And by the grace of God, the Lord will help us sort out those differences. That's why we must be praying together that God's going to help us figure out those things. We must be students of the Scriptures. We must have a personal relationship with Jesus. Each of us individually must know the Word of God ourselves and through our relationship with Jesus be learning what He's trying to teach us there. We talked a lot about what Ellen White says in Great Controversy yesterday. I'm not going to talk about that today. Those quotations are in the notes from yesterday. We tend to put everything, and this is a new observation, we tend to put everything in the church related ideas and concepts into boxes. Let me suggest it's time to throw the boxes away. The conservative or the liberal box, the woman's ordination or the headship box, the 1888 box, the Ford theology box, the final generation box, the whatever theology box. There's only one box that matters, and that's God's box, in which you'll find the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that will guide us and direct us clearly to where we need to be. Remember, those boxes all have people in them for whom Jesus died. And the Word of God is there to help us shed the boxes and focus on the truth. I want to make this observation from yesterday. A couple people came to me, and I appreciate the fact that they did, because that means they were looking very carefully and not accepting everything they saw in front of them. That doesn't mean you didn't see it. It just means they came to me and talked to me. And so I went back to look carefully at what I gave you on the screen and realized that inadvertently I'd made a mistake. So I'm correcting that mistake today. First of all, there were two slides on the screen. Both of them were in F.D. Nichols' book, Answers to Objections. The problem was the first slide was the objection. (laughs) If you know his book, you'll understand what that means. It means he was not giving the answer. He was telling what people were objecting to and their question. And so I was trying to portray it as being the answer when it was really the question. That was the first slide. The second slide was the answer. But it was only a portion of the answer. And if for some reason you saw that and it was really bothering you, I've got the whole thing right here, okay? (laughs) And you can see the objection that was there, and then you can see the total and complete answer that he gave. The most important thing that I was illustrating there by that particular statement is that in the time when, um, when this was written, which, what, uh, which I believe was 1952, F.T. Nickel was expressing his opinion consistent with what the Seventh-day Adventist Church taught at that particular time on the nature of Christ. And the response that he gave was affirming the belief that the church had at that time that Christ's nature was a fallen nature. Now that's throwing you, I'm just reporting history right now. I'm not trying to get into theology. I'm trying to give you the history. But he was simply stating what he believed and what the church believed and taught at that time. Okay? So I'm not going to labor on that particular point. If you have more questions, there are some sheets here. I did not make enough for everybody because I wasn't sure everybody had the question. If for somebody, some reason there's a long line of uh, 100 people here afterwards and we run out after 20 copies are given out, I will make more copies for tomorrow. <laughs> All right? I try to save money by you know, not wasting paper and trees and all that kind of thing. I'd like to review quickly where we have come so far. On Monday, we looked at the Bible and the spirit of prophecy teaching on Christ our righteousness. 
We are sinners, and I'm summarizing what we talked about from the Word of God there. I'm not putting the Bible verses on. They're all in the notes from the first day. So if you didn't get them, we've made more copies. They're up here, and if we run out of those, I can get more also tomorrow. We are sinners condemned to die. A sinner has broken the law, which is holy. The law is righteous. God is righteous, and we must be righteous if we are to avoid the death penalty. God has provided the gift of His Son, forgiveness for sin, and righteousness that comes from His Son. Righteousness is part of the gift. We receive this gift by? His righteousness is symbolized by His robe. When we accept His robe, He not only forgives us our sins, but He also removes our sin. The Laodicean church is prepared for the second coming of Christ by accepting Christ's robe of righteousness. That was our discussion on Monday. Just a reminder of a fundamental statement in relationship to all of this, and that is from Ellen White. I'm going to give it to you again because it sets tone for where we need to go before we get done tomorrow. The Lord in His great mercy, Ellen White said, sent a most precious message to His people through elders Jones, Wagner, and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to re receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to His divine person, His merits, and His changeless love for the human family. All power is given into His hands that He may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of His own righteousness to the helpless human agent." This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure. We certainly could spend the rest of the time talking about that and all things related to it. Not today. On Tuesday, we reviewed the teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Christ our Righteousness from 1888 until 1900. Though Ellen White, Jones, Wagner, Prescott, and others were clear and consistent about the message, Uriah Smith, G.I. Butler, and others opposed some key points fearing it was undermining SDA theology on the law. That especially centered in on the discussion of the book of Galatians and an understanding of the law, whether it was ceremonial or whether it was the Ten Commandment law, and that was the major point of focus and contention. There were other issues that they discussed that were connected with that, but that was a major focal point, and that included the discussion of the covenants. Again, this is not a discussion of theology, it's a review of our history in regard to our theology. On Wednesday, we talked about the history of our church from 1900 to 1950. The teaching regarding Christ our righteousness was, I called it, stable, and much the same as in the previous years with some for and some in opposition to key points. Namely, still, the issue relating to the two covenants, the um, Ten Commandment Law, and, and so on. Those individual issues were continued to be a focal point. But, but, as we reviewed yesterday, A.G. Daniels, the General Conference President, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church from 1901 until 1922, in his book that came out in 1926, made it very clear that the message still had not been accepted and had the focus and impact that they knew it was supposed to have. It did not have that impact. They confessed it, they wrote it in the book, they indicated that it was not yet doing what they knew it was supposed to do. It was, a, if you call it what you want, you call it a confession that they had not been following what God wanted them to do. It was a statement of that, which is why they put the book out. I believe, personally, I wasn't there, but I believe that their goal was to provide the opportunity for that to become a focal point again. 
We also re- were reminded through some of the Sabbath school quarterlies of the period that on a particular subject, namely the issue of Christ, our righteousness, and its relationship to the human nature of Christ, the Sabbath school quarterlies made it very clear that it was a consistent teaching within the Seventh-day Adventist Church that basically was the same as the time before that we talked about from 1888 to 1900. There were three other publications that came out um, during this period from 1900 to 1950. One of those publications was the Bible Readings for the Home. Another was Drama of the Ages by Branson, who was a General Conference president. And Answers to Objections by Nichols that we already referred to earlier. And they were still sharing the human nature of Christ as it had been understood and published since 1888. Remember that Nichols' book came out in 1952. Now, my years here have just been put in little boxes. Sorry about that, but I couldn't resist that. Of dates, and from 1900 to 1950 the church was still consistent in relationship to that teaching. Just want you to keep that point, because that is important in relationship to our discussion today. Now I'd like to move into what we need to talk about today. I'm going to be sharing a lot from a particular book. There's always a challenge in doing that. But I believe that this is one of the best summaries of what took place in the years from 1950 up until our more recent time today in relationship to some of these issues and specifically in relationship to our discussion about uh, righteousness by faith and some of the issues that are connected to it. So I want to give you a historical overview at the moment of what kind of was going on about this time in 1950. There are so many details that I would love to share with you today, but we'd have to do that in our living room somewhere, sitting down with about at least a half a day to work on those details. I've got to try to do it in the next 35 minutes. And uh, so I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can here. I'm going to be quoting, and you'll see where I am. I try to to designate that. And uh, I'm starting with Douglas's uh, statement in his book, A Fork in the Road, his introduction, in which he gives some of this history that I think is important. One of the reasons that I believe this is so critical is because Herbert Douglas was there and a key player at the time. That, to me, is huge. If you want to talk about what happened there, but you weren't there, I'd rather talk about somebody who was with somebody who was there and who knew and understood what some of the ramifications were. I wish he were still alive today. He's not. He died just a few years ago. But before he did, he wrote this book, which was actually um, a paper for lack of a better term, that he shared in 2007. I'll try to illustrate that here for you. He says this in his introduction, The time between 1957 has been called the most destabilizing period in the history of the Adventist Church. Why? Because of the publication of the book, Questions on Doctrine. He quotes George Knight, and this is what George Knight says, who was the editor, or I should say is the editor for the historical and theological introduction to the book, the annotated edition of Questions on Doctrine that came out in 2003. And this is what he says. He says that the Questions on Doctrine easily qualifies as the most divisive book in Seventh-day Adventist history, a book published to help bring peace between Adventism and conservative Protestantism. Its release brought prolonged alienation and separation to the Adventist factions that grew up around it. That's quite a statement. So I want to ask you a question, just again out of curiosity. How many of you have ever heard of the book, Questions on Doctrine? Uh Uh-huh, I figured that might be the case. So my real worry is that there are so many who have never even heard of it, never read it, 
and have no knowledge about it. But the fact that you know something about it is good. What you and I need to talk about is whatever its ramifications. Douglas goes on, and I'm now summarizing some of his points, where he points out that on October 24, 27, of 2007, they had the 50th anniversary conference in, rega in regard to questions on doctrine at Andrews University. A significant book needed to be looked at again. After 50 years, it was decided they would come together and talk about it. Twenty-four scholars contributed thoughts on the 57 publication. There was, he said, remarkable unanimity, not on what they believed, but as in terms of respect and appreciation for each other. I'd like to say that it was unanimity on, unanimity on what they believed. It wasn't. But most participants were not even born, he says, or even in high school in 1957. He was an exception. Douglas says, I was there. He says, I knew all the principal players very well, even more so as the years went by. He was one of the assistant editors of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary from 1955 to 1957 and under the book editor who was Mervyn Thurber. Thurber shared manuscripts as this book, Questions on Doctrine, was developing as they came through on almost a daily basis. Their offices were very close to each other, and Thurber would share them with Douglas and others around there as this whole uh, issue and situation was developing. The authors of Question on Doctrine were R.A. Anderson, an evangelist, and, uh, and also... Uh, it's another word I want, but basically he was an evangelist. W.E. Reed, who was an administrator who understood biblical languages, and Leroy Froome, a researcher and author of the books The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers and The Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, two of the most significant uh, books on the history of prophecy and its development over the many years, not just ours, but going back in history. They are fantastic books. He was a phenomenal researcher. They have done an awful lot for me as a minister and for our church. They were also and are highly respected by denominations other than our own because he was a thorough researcher. Questions on Doctrine was applauded when it came out in 1957 for most of its content because, like I said earlier today and yesterday, our differences are far outweighed by what we agree on. And so in the Adventist Church, there was so much there that we very clearly agreed on. And there was a lot of gratitude for those things even receiving some clarity. But... An explosive response focused on that book after it came out on the rewriting of Adventist thinking on the humanity of Jesus and the limited inadequate pre presentation of the Adventist sanctuary doctrine. Now, I'm being very summarial here. I'm, I'm putting a lot into that there, but it, it, it says a lot. Milton L. Andreasen was an Adventist theologian who, by the time of this publication, was retired. But he was considered to be and recognized as Adventist leading theologian for years. He was a leading voice, alarmed by what he saw developing in regard to Adventist theology through this book. As he got wind of the things that were happening, and I have to say got wind because of the way things developed, he had a lot of concerns. He shared his concerns with the GC president, but was, this is an overview statement, virtually ignored. Douglas goes on, and he says that two other principal players in the drama, which were which was... Questions on Doctrine, because it was a book that brought about a tremendous amount of drama. The two other principal players were Dr. Donald Barnhouse, editor of the influential Eternity magazine, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but an ev evangelical Christian. 
Also, Walter Martin, a researcher with a reputation in the evangelical world as a specialist in non-Christian cults and also one of Barnhouse's consulting editors. Martin was finishing a book at the time entitled The Rise of the Cults. He viewed the SDAs as one of the big five with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unity, and Christian Science. And that is a significant issue. Now, you know what? We don't like to be called a cult. All right? I don't like to be called a cult. The truth of the matter is one of the biggest cults in Christianity is perhaps the biggest church in Christianity. But nobody seems to recognize that, unfortunately. But they like to lump all the rest of us into cults. And he was writing this book. Let's progress along here and see how this develops. At this point, I've got to say to you, things get complicated. There's a whole book on it. You can read it, and probably a whole lot more books that you can read. I'm going to try to summarize the key points so that you and I can get an understanding of the major issue generated here. Going to the next slide, we discover that there was an individual by the name of T. Toby E. Unruh who commended Barnhouse on Righteousness by Faith for a broad, from a radio broadcast that he happened to hear. Dialogue begins by uh, Elder Unruh, who was a conference president, and they decided they dialogued together over a period of about five years. This was an Adventist dialoguing with an evangelical. The evangelical had a radio broadcast. He at one point spoke about righteousness by faith. Unruh called him and said, hey, really enjoyed your, my words, okay, <laughs> really enjoyed your broadcast on righteousness by faith. Just want you to know that I agree with you, which made Barnhouse just about fall out of his chair because he didn't believe Seventh-day Adventists believed in such a thing. And so he had a little bit of a challenge with that, and that started a dialogue. A meeting was set that also included, uh, I got ahead of myself, he asked for an interview with Leroy Froome, who he knew via his books. Remember I said the books that he wrote that were well-recognized in Christianity? And so he said, I'd like to have a meeting together there, and that included Martin, who had gotten a hold of this uh, correspondent. He was actually the one who asked for that, together with Barnhouse. Getting ahead of myself here, sorry. A meeting was set that also included uh, the other principal players, two of them anyway, Reed and Anderson. And conferences began in March of 1955 and ended in May of 1956. They found common ground and grounds for dialogue and difference. But Martin felt that he was getting a different picture than he expected. Yay! Praise the Lord for that. He saw Seventh-day Adventists, as he said it, not heretics as we thought, but rather redeemed brethren in Christ. Well, that's a wonderful thing, folks, because that's what we are. But life is more complicated than that because we have a real devil out there who really is trying to make a mess of everything, and he's doing a really good job of making a mess of everything. So it continues to get even more complicated because a double challenge began to emerge. As Martin and Barnhouse were seeing this similarity, they were still struggling with some other things that were big issues to them. And that double challenge emerged this way. Martin was signed by Zondervan to include SDAs in his cult book. He was reneging. That wasn't making Zondervan happy because what you put in your book sells copies. And they were hoping that Seventh-day Adventists would be listed as a cult there, and he was thinking about taking them out. That was part of the challenge that he had. For Froome and Reed and Anderson, we will call them the trio here, as Douglas does, had the burden of explaining to the Adventist church how things were developing. Because the things that were developing is, as 
Barnhouse and, and Martin were talking with, with uh, the trio. They were struggling to understand a couple of key points, which is what we've got to talk about. We must therefore, because we're getting too complicated, and I could get so confused myself in saying this all to you, I'm going to stick to my slides and make sure that we try to hit the key points. What were the theological implications of what was happening? A little history and the theology combined together in the time that we have left. Some of the key doctrines that needed to be explained that these poor gentlemen could not understand um, were, are listed here, and I'll mention them in a moment. They needed to be explained, though, hopefully in a way that these two evangelicals could understand and not rebel against, at least in seeing them as potential Bible, biblical truth. The problem is, any time you start a conversation with someone who has a different understanding of the Word of God than you have, you have to start where they are, right? And that can be challenging. And that's exactly the problem they ran into. The problem they ran into was that they were on totally different planes. And when you try to do that, you gotta, you really got to get it all sorted out. And sometimes, to be frank, you can't. The doctrines that were key in terms of Adventism are the heavenly sanctuary and Christ's two-phase ministry there, which, by the way, includes the issue of the atonement. This was a big deal for Barnhouse and, and Martin, was the issue of the atonement. They believed that the atonement uh, was settled. In other words, the, the situation that makes us at one with Christ was settled and finished and completed at the cross. Seventh-day Adventists believe that Jesus, after the resurrection, went to the heavenly sanctuary and he's continued his work there because there's a work to be completed. Are you with me? Amen. Good. We're together. Barnhouse and Martin were not with them. They did not understand that. They didn't have the understanding of the sanctuary. They couldn't, as I'll make clear as we get a little farther. The investigative judgment, part of that issue. The spirit of prophecy in Ellen White. The seal of God in the mark of the beast. And the three angels' messages were things that needed to be clarified with Barnhouse and Martin. Troublesome issues for Martin and Barnhouse were especially the human nature of Christ and our view of the atonement in the sanctuary process. That's where things got complicated. Here are some important points. Because there are many Seventh-day Adventist publications that were out there in the 1950s, including ones we talked about yesterday, which is why I'm reminding you of those things. This is all coming together now. I'm telling you about what was out there because those books that were written by Seventh-day Adventists were expressing our views of what we believed in. Nichols and Branson and the book, you know, Bible Readings for the Home, etc., etc. To say nothing of Ellen White and, and, and others, those were all out there. Well, you know what? Martin and Barnhouse, especially Martin, had read those. And they understood what they believed Seventh-day Adventists to be teaching. Now, naturally, they're coming from their own background, and so they get confused with all of that. But they read that. And when they came to the trio and asked them about that, there were some challenges. You see, Barnhouse wrote an article in which he spoke of these doctrines that were still troubling them as being taught by, because as they talked with the trio, the trio was trying to downplay some of those other, some of those doctrines that were a little troublesome. You know how you sometimes say something in a conversation that you, you're trying to, you know, well, you know, maybe it's not quite the way you see it. Barnhouse, from their discussions, said that, well, if we understand correctly, it's just the lunatic fringe in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that believes those things in relationship to these troublesome doctrines. But as the trio tried to work around those issues, they were trying to explain it in a way inadvertently that was changing Adventist theology, was not consistent with what we believed and had taught since basically our inception. 
Now, we've been only going back to 1888. It's just a point of reference. But as things continued on, that's what we believed. That developed a problem because in September of 57, that came out. And he said th he spoke about the lunatic fringe, and I'm quoting, as there are similar wide, uh, wild eyed, irresponsible uh, individuals in every field of fundamental Christianity. He was he had followers to his Eternity magazine, evangelical followers. And he was saying, you know, the Adventists have got the same problem the rest of us do. There are lunatic a lunatic fringe in every denomination, and these ones who believe those things about the sanctuary and those things about the three angels' messages and those things about the nature of Christ, they're just the lunatic fringe in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ooh, that might have been okay for the evangelicals, but the word got back to the lunatic fringe <laughs> in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. One of those was M.L. Andreasen, the leading theologian in the Adventist church at that point. He found himself, along with several other individuals, as being included in the Adventist uh, lunatic fringe. I'll give you a list a little farther on uh, of those individuals. You might be surprised. Douglas points out that there were a, was a very basic problem with what was happening, something he described as being like two tectonic plates colliding together and causing an earthquake. You understand tectonic plates? I'm not a geologist. But basically, you have two plates out there made up of, you know, like going out to the San Andreas Fault, and these two things start hitting each other as they did over the last few days, and they had a swarm of, of, uh, of earthquakes, little earthquakes out in California, and I grew up there, so I pay attention when that happens. At any rate, he said they were like these two major tectonic plates hitting each other and causing a major earthquake. He describes the tectonic plates as evangelical Calvinism and Adventist Arminianism. Oh boy, is that a mouthful or what? I'm going to try to explain that now. For right now, you need to put on your theological hat. And I'm going to try to explain it because it's important to this. Don't get bogged down in it. Just understand that it's underlying the challenges of the time. The key differences in these two perspectives um, were major stumbling blocks. Now, Adventists are not Arminians. I want you to understand that. But we have some affinity to Armini Arminians, and it will become closer to you here in a moment. Calvinism generated what we would call today the Reformed churches. The Dutch Reformed, the Christian Reformed, uh, whatever, come out of that tradition out of John Calvin. With me? All, they believe things like this. All men and women are born sinners, and once saved, they're always saved. And Christ died only for the elect. In other words, we have no real choice in the matter of salvation. That's essentially a very brief summary of what comes out of the Reformed churches, which is what Barnhouse and Martin had as their background. Arminianism has its roots um, in, uh, has its root, had, we have in Arminianism our roots of the great controversy, uh, which includes freedom of choice. And uh, it was a theological reaction. Arminianism was our theological reaction to Calvinism's doctrine of predestination. So let me try to make that clear. Calvin's doctrine can be summarized as predestination. You've heard that term before, right? Basically, that lays, lays the foundation for once saved, always saved. Arminian, um, Jacobus, I believe, was his first name. He actually had another last name, but that's the name that, that is tied to him. He reacted to Calvin, and his reaction against Calvin's predestination is what we call Arminianism today. And it, whereas there was no free choice in Calvin's react, in, in Calvin's theology, Arminian did believe that there was free choice. That are is where we are. But the trouble is, when these the Adventist trio and these two individuals, Barnhouse and Martin, were talking, they were colliding in this particular area. 
This conflict of basic theological views created an environment where something would have to give. Just as when two tectonic plates hit each other, something has to give, and that's what causes an earthquake. The issues in 1955 to 57, to state them more clearly, this is what we would say. There were differences regarding sin, original sin, and its implications. We'll look at that a little farther down. In relationship to conditionalism and free will, all of which affected one's understanding. Now catch this. What you believe on something affects your end result. Do you get that? If you believe that you can't be saved, you're not going to bother to, to learn anything about the Bible because you've decided you can't be saved. But if you come to a conclusion that the Bible teaches you can be saved because of what Jesus has done, that's going to change your attitude toward the Bible. Well, that was a very simple explanation, not directly tied to this, but their conclusions are affected by what they believed. And in relationship to understanding of Christ's humanity, the multiple aspects of His atonement, which we believe, the consequences of all this affect one's eschatology. I told you yesterday the challenge that we are on is that today Adventist theology in an oversimplified way, me being the oversimplifier, we're on two tracks. One of, both of those tracks say they're headed toward being prepared for the return of Jesus. The trouble is, one suggests that there are some things that you need to be doing, and I say you need to be doing, that need to be happening in our lives would be a better way of saying it, in preparation for the return of Jesus. The other one says, no, Jesus has done it all, there really isn't anything else that needs to happen. And you're going to say, that sounds an awful lot like they're right next to each other. The problem is the end conclusion does not get you there on both tracks. Okay, now I don't know that I explained that terribly well, but stay with me and I think it'll get clearer. Adventists do not fit into either the Calvinist or the Arminian tectonic plate. That was where Barnhouse and Martin were struggling and the trio got in trouble. They got in trouble because they were trying to get those two things connected together and Adventism is just not there. We may have some roots with a great controversy in the Arminian theology, but that's only a piece. It's not all that we believe. So, here's where we differ on the nature of mankind. We don't possess an immortal soul. They believe. Okay? This is Barnhouse and Martin and the Reformed tradition. They don't believe that we, I mean, we believe that we don't, oh, say this right, we believe that we don't possess an immortal soul. Hence, we don't believe in original sin like the Calvinists do. Original sin, I'm it's coming to that, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary is another area where we differ. We believe that in His high priestly role, Christ's work is directly affecting our salvation and our preparation to be entrusted with eternal life. Almost unanimously, prior to 1955, we as the Seventh-day Adventist Church accepted the biblical counsel that Jesus was born a human being in every respect and that Christ showed us how to live and die that we can eventually be entrusted with eternal life. That is a more complicated way of saying that up until 1955, as I've already demonstrated over the last couple of days, the Seventh-day Adventist Church believed in relationship to the nature of Christ that Christ took on the fallen nature of human beings. Okay, I'm just giving you a historical view. I'm not teaching theology. I'm teaching reality of theology. No, of history. Okay, so Douglas points this out, helping us to understand what the challenge and the problem was. The question is now, where does this all wind up? The problem began to develop with, for, and get, make things a lot more complicated in the reviewing process that came about in relationship to that book. The reviewing process, you sometimes hear the word vetting. I've always wondered what that word was. I had to look it up to figure out what vetting was. But basically it is the, the, the process of deciding how this is going to go ahead and, and how to do it and is it on the right track, etc. This is what happened. Supposedly, 
And I say supposedly because historically we've got evidence to the other way. Supposedly, scores of individuals in the Seventh-day Adventist Church reviewed the manuscript script of questions on doctrine and approved it. Now, I want to make sure one thing's clear. Remember, questions on doctrine was not written by Martin and Barnhouse. It was written by Seventh-day Adventists, i.e. the trio. Okay? It was written by them. But they, the trio, said that the book and its contents was vetted through the Seventh-day Adventist Church leadership. Froome made this statement. He said that it was prepared by the General Conference, by a group of our ablest scholars, and approved by our leaders throughout the world. To clarify the world, to the world, the true evangelical nature of Adventist beliefs and teachings. And, he said, no more eminent or representative group could have been consulted. No more competent group could approve. And that they did. That's his statement. Douglas is quoting him. Douglas goes on and then he makes this statement. Douglas says, I was there. I read and heard the mantra that this large group of Adventist leaders had indeed affirmed the question on doctrine approach. Only later did the truth come out that only a very few actually responded. Nothing arrived from outside of North America. He goes on in saying, no local or union conference administrator from North America responded, partly because they were stunned, or on reflection, they thought that questions on doctrine was not going to go anywhere. Then in the next paragraph, Douglas says, the editors at the Review and Herald Publishing Association, with him whom he associated by his work, sent individual letters to Figure, who was the president at the time, and to the Question on Doctrine trio, and expressed great concern for the general procedure, hoping for more biblical backup for each of our doctrines. At that time, to, uh, some warnings came from key leaders and theologians in the church. Raymond Cottrell, for example, associate editor of the commentary, and Francis D. Nickel, you heard me talk about him already, editor of the Review and Herald, sent warning letters to the leadership saying, this is trouble, my summary of it all. Now, by the way, here's your list of the lunatic fringe the people who believed those particular teachings. And uh, this is, to me, worth its weight in gold. These are the ones he listed. The lunatic fringe not only included M.L. Andreessen. By the way, as a result of all that went along here, M.L. Andreessen lost his credentials as the leading theologian of the Seventh-day Adventist Church because he refused to just sit down and let this take place. The good news is he got his credentials back after he died. F.D. Nickel, Branson, Cottrell, Ray Cottrell, Don Neufeld, sideline, I played golf with that dear man. <laughs> that just shows how old I am, folks. Uh, E.J. Wagner, Jones, Haskell, Prescott, Uriah Smith. Uriah Smith's on the right side on this issue. Wilcox, Reeser, Thompson, all the others here. I just picked out a few that I recognize. McGuire, Haynes, Wilcox, A.G. Daniels, L.H. Wood, Olson. Fenton, uh, Edwin Froome, not to be confused with Leroy Froome, W.E. Reed, who was part of the trio, interestingly enough, in itself, and then, and the hundreds of times Ellen White unambiguously wrote that Jesus accepted the results of the great law of heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. Those were the lunatic fringe that were being referred to. And I see your hands, but I can't take them right now. So you're going to have to forgive me. I've got to get to the end page, and I've still got 10 slides to go. You know that because they're there. Now, here's, here's the key points that you must catch as understanding this process. We need to take a quick look at the Calvinist view of salvation because this affects what we do tomorrow. You need to understand this, at least if you don't grasp it all, at least have some, a piece of the knowledge in regard to it. This is what Calvinists believe about salvation and the way God works. It's all under the title of the sovereignty of God. In other words, they believe that God is sovereign, He's in control of everything, and therefore the following is true. Mankind could not possibly have free will or responsibility because God is sovereign. If he wasn't sovereign, if he was, if he 
were sovereign, then you couldn't have free will. Well, we believe we have free will, don't we? It, if one is to be saved, it is because of God's sovereign choice to save them. God has to choose to save them. This fits into the once saved, always saved doctrine. If Jesus is man's savior, he would have to die for those that are already elected to be saved. In other words, he didn't just die for humanity. He died simply for those who were already elected to be saved. Jesus could not have inherited the genetic stream of his ancestors because if so, he would have been born a sinner. Their salvation, their solution to this whole issue is that Jesus had to be exempt from all inherited tendencies to sin and which really takes us to original sin, which is a Roman Catholic theology in terms of original sin. Do you all understand what I mean by original sin? Okay. Some of you said no, and I heard that. Um, Come see me afterwards. I just don't want to bog down there right now. I wish I could. Faith and ability are words that they use in relationship to be given, the, uh, to be used to be able to profess gratefulness to Christ for his substitution. In other words, all I need with faith is to accept the fact that Christ substituted for me, but I'm going to be saved because I was elected to be saved, and, and by faith I accept the fact that that happened for me. Now, the truth of the matter is, it might be that I wasn't elected, and my faith is unfounded. That's another point. That's whatever. They are foreordained, foreordained to be saved, cannot fall out of grace, and never be unsaved. Okay? That's their theology. Including in that is there's no room for the binding claims of the moral law. The law has nothing to do with salvation because you are preordained to be saved. You can't be unsaved by breaking the law. So therefore, why do I even need to worry about the law? That's what the end result of Calvinistic theology is. Is that a problem for Seventh-day Adventists? Uh-huh. Was that a problem for the trio? Yes, it was. Because they were trying to find a way to balance this and they were in trouble. So the theological conflict could be summarized this way. Those who acknowledge the binding claim of the moral law can explain the nature and purpose of the atonement. That when Jesus paid the indebtedness of the repentant sinner, he did not give him or her license to continue sinning, but to now live responsibly in obedience to the law. Calvinists are not able to process this fundamental thought. That's a quotation from Douglas. They can't manage that. That creates a problem. Obviously, we can't get these two views to match each other or to confirm to conform to each other. Something has to give. Now, Douglas makes this good observation, and I'm going to have to go a little bit past, but you can tell where I'm at, and I'm not far from the end, okay? Douglas refers to what he calls the great controversy theme. We all understand the great controversy. And we're so blessed by understanding the great controversy. Oh, how I wish that other Christians understood the real war that's going on and the nature of the great controversy. But Douglas says this on page 41. What could have made all the difference in this struggle at the time with Barnhouse and Martin would have been a biblical view of the great controversy theme in contrast to Calvinism's limited understanding of the character of God and the gospel. The central question for both parties that needs to be answered, my words, is what does God's plan accomplish with his salvation plan? They were on different planes and they were trying to get together and they weren't able to do it. And all it did was create theological upheaval, not in Calvinism, but in the Seventh-day Adventist church. In a few words, he continues on, on God's side, the purpose of the great controversy theme is to prove Satan wrong in his charges against God's character and his government. The issue is always planted in God's created soil of freedom responsibility, freedom. And I had to skip quite a bit in there. You can read it in his book. Freedom to respond to their creator, either positively or negatively. Love is an attribute found only in the larger embracing air of freedom. Throughout the biblical story, God was trying to make clear what he planned to accomplish with his salvation plan as he manifested his fairness, love, and trustworthiness through his dealing with first the Israelites and eventually in the person of Jesus Christ. 
On page 42, he says, on the human side, the purpose of the great controversy theme is to restore in willing men and women the image of Christ, their maker. To do so, the Holy Spirit's task is to work out of a person's life all that sin has worked in. By God's grace, men and women, regardless of nationality and level of schooling, can be forgiven and transformed into overcomers who hate sin. People that God and the angels can trust with eternal life will inhabit the redeemed world. No rebels will be granted eternal life. The highest motivation for God's loyalist is to honor God, not to merely impress Him. Now this is, this is Douglas speaking, all right? He's speaking theology. I'm referring to it in a historical way. This is what he's saying was a problem, what, 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 what was going on with Barnhouse and Martin at that time. He continues in relation to the sanctuary doctrine by saying that the sanctuary doctrine emphasizes how God forgives and justifies only penitent men or women, but more. The doctrine equally emphasizes that God promises to empower the penitent so that the that sins are eliminated by the inner graces of the Holy Spirit. The penitent men and women who continue to cooperate with God will truly find the peace, assurance, and divine empowerment that comes in completing the gospel plan in his or her life. This was never made clear to our Calvinist friends in 1957, and it has been one of the causes of Adventist theological muddle in the years since. Now here's the real challenge. We are told that what happened in that situation created an opportunity to be able to show what the real truth of the Word of God is, but unfortunately the opportunity was missed in order to compromise theology. But it turns that it's worse than that. Douglas says, think of how many articles and Adventist periodicals have argued over whether sanctification was even part of righteousness by faith. Think of how many churches were rent over those who said justification was far more important than sanctification. Behind all this was confusion over what happened on the cross and what happened, what happened in 1957. Going on, he says, further, how many pastors left the Adventist church because they were convinced by very persuasive scholars that Christ in the heavenly sanctuary was not only not needed, but a twisted fabrication of Ellen White's theology. How many young people were relieved, if not elated, to hear that their character had nothing to do with their salvation, or that Jesus paid it all on the cross, and our only responsibility was to accept Jesus' death as full payment and not to worry about doing anything to add to what Jesus did for us. All this is pure confusion, he said. Now, I'm coming to the conclusion, but I need to make this observation. There's a lot of history in what Douglas just said there but I want to put some flesh on that history. Remember, the book came out in 1957. I was born in 1953. I became a Seventh-day Adventist minister by going through Seventh-day Adventist schools. I went to school in 1971 out of academy. I went to Pacific Union College, recognized in those days as a leading theology school. Wonderful, godly theologians there, Roger Kuhn, Olson, um, and several others that I could name. I'm just not going to go down that road right now. And, and I, I learned a lot from them. But this was 1970s. In 1977, I graduated. In 1979, a man by the name of Desmond Ford came to Pacific Union College. I missed him by two years. When he, Douglas, is talking about Seventh-day Adventists walking out, Seventh-day Adventist ministers walking out of the church because of confusion over the sanctuary, he's talking about the results of Ford's theology. What Ford did was devastate the Seventh-day Adventist church in relationship to the theology and making Ellen White's view of the sanctuary and the ministry of Christ of little to no effect. That's what happened during that time. In my ministry, even today, a few years ago, there was an individual who wanted to come back to be a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who was one of those ministers, and I'm talking about in the 2000s, who wanted to come back to the church after having walked out after Ford's theology led them that direction. That is the 
ground work in my own life. I could tell you a whole lot more. I'm not going to take the more except to say this one point. I had conversations with my fellow students in relationship to the things that we're talking about here today. I've continued to have discussions on and off with people over the last 40 years. I've always wondered why I was confused. It's only in the last few weeks that I've really understood why. My father was a Seventh-day Adventist minister. He told me about questions on doctrine. But I heard from other sources and all on, well, whatever, whatever. So instead of listening to dad, I thought, okay, you know, it's just my dad, whatever. He's, you know, whatever. And I walked down that track and I just kind of put that off to the side. But in the last few years, going back to 2003 and 2007 where, where um, uh, Douglas puts together his book, for a paper in relationship to to, uh, questions on doctrine. Suddenly this has come back to the surface and has provided opportunity for me and many others to look at this again. And all of a sudden I'm saying, okay, I'm starting to get this. But as I read Douglas's book, the light went on. I said, now I understand what happened. It's because as a result of that book, Questions on Doctrine, the theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been turned in a whole different direction. That's a pretty bold statement on my part. But I'm coming at it from my own perspective, and I'm telling you from my journey, that's what happened. Now do you understand why I took you on the journey from Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, helping us to understand that the theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been consistent until 1950, but that then in the 50s, as a result of questions on doctrine, our theology has taken a different turn. Why? Because not only did these the trio start teaching this theology, but it started working its way into our theological institutions. And I was a recipient of that theology. And what I saw on one side just didn't seem to be jiving together. And I didn't take the time to study it and to look at it for myself and look at the Word of God. I haven't told you what I believe. I'm just telling you that's where I got confused. And for a long time, I've been confused. But when I read Douglas's book, and I've met Dr. Douglas, and he's a wonderful man, and I just I haven't really known him personally, so I want to make sure that's clear. But as I looked at all of that, I've always wondered, and all of a sudden it came to the light turned on, realizing where things had turned and gone. That's where the Seventh-day Adventist Church is today. It's wrestling with this issue. So I want to give you some conclusions today. Until 19, the 1950s, the church was fairly united on doctrine, including the nature of Christ and the atonement and the role of Christ as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. In 1957 uh, and following, the book Questions on Doctrine had a major impact on some very important areas of our theology that directly affect our understanding of Christ our righteousness. It is up to us as individuals to decide how this impacts us. History is not enough, folks. You and I are not going to be able to come to Jesus and say, you know, the history just really confused me. He said, the history is not the point. I've given you my word. I've given you the Bible. Was the Bible not plain? Was the Bible not clear? Are you telling me that the Holy Spirit could not teach you from the Word of God what is there? That is the challenge that you and I have to face today. So tomorrow, the question is what now? Tuesday through today has been history. What should this mean to me now? How should I relate to this history? What does the Bible say about what is ahead and Christ's plans for me in preparation for his return? Are the Bible and the writings of Ellen White united on this? Yes, the question is, what now? And that's what we need to talk about tomorrow. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we're all on a journey.
The church is on a journey. And I'm so grateful that the leader in this journey is you. Thank you for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Father, for all that you are doing for us and all that you've provided. But Lord, these are the last days, just before Jesus comes back again. And we're confused in our church. We're divided in our church. Lord, we are begging you for the latter reign of the Holy Spirit. We're asking you, please, to send your Spirit back to us again. It's very clear that you told us that the latter rain, through Ellen White, that the latter rain started many years ago, but that we turned it away. Oh, Lord, please help us to get back on your track again. As we leave this place tonight, I pray that you will go with us, that you will bless our time together and our fellowship. And as students of the Word of God, Lead us to be further and deeper in our prayer time so that we can be sure we're on your path. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.